All right, now this particular discourse still continues. Last night it was first about the four taints, which are actually almost uh, identical with the uh, three cravings, which are our underlying difficulties. And then it was the five noble powers to see the ugly and the beautiful, the beautiful and the ugly, to see both in both and eventually come to the point where there is no reaction at all. Now then, the next the part of this sutta again are the jhanas and um, I'll read them out. They are a little bit differently worded again. And one of the interesting aspects is that they start out, as the last one also, the last uh, um, injunction also starts out, if he should desire, in other words, if one wants to put up one's, make up one's mind to do this, aloof from sensuality, aloof from sensual desires, huh? aloof from evil conditions, conditions of the mind, of course, Anyone who has in the mind any kind of negativity obviously will find it extremely difficult to do the jhanas or to do any meditation. Negativity and meditation just don't go together. And the interesting aspect of that is also that people like to meditate in order to have calm and happiness in their minds. But if one doesn't have some calm and happiness already, one can't meditate. So catch 22. Aloof from sensuality, aloof from evil conditions of the mind, having entered the first jhana, which is accompanied by initial application and sustained application, that is born of seclusion enthusiastic and blissful, may I abide therein he must do likewise. Now the words he must do likewise are um, referring to the concentration on in-breath outbreath. That's what it's all about because um, whatever it was that had been done in this sutta or has been um, explained is all connected to concentration on in-breath outbreath. So in order to get to that first um, jhana, also, concentration on in-breath, out-breath. And aloof, completely apart from. Huh? Now, initial application and sustained application, we know that already. Born of seclusion. Now, that seclusion is the seclusion from sensuality and evil conditions of the mind. It does not necessarily mean that one has to be physically secluded because a person who is practiced in the jhanas can do the first jhana, the first one for sure, anywhere. Anywhere at all. There's no problem at all connected with the first one. But later on, of course, one needs a bit of a quiet place. But the word seclusion means 
the seclusion of mind and not necessarily the seclusion of body. Both can be also understood with that. Now, if he should desire, which means if one wants to carry on, get on further, by the calming down of initial and sustained application, entering on inward calm, one-pointedness of mind, quite apart from initial and sustained application, that is born of mental balance, rapturous and enthusiastic, which is the second jhana, may I abide therein, he must do likewise. Now one of the few things, some of the things are wrongly translated, that's why I'm uh, doing it slowly to put the right words there. Um, in the second jhana, initial and sustained application, Vitaka Vichara, is no longer, uh, are no longer factors of the second jhana because the initial application means sitting down and getting going and the sustained application means to keep your mind on it. So in the second jhana one has no longer the necessity to do that. There's an inner calm and one-pointedness of mind. Now one-pointedness of mind is one of the factors of all jhanas. There's no way that one can become absorbed without one-pointedness, so that is there. The inward calm, one wonders what they're translating, <laughs> it isn't necessarily properly translated, but the mental balance is a new uh, addition here for the second jhana, and that's quite a good one, born of mental balance. The mental balance is that the mind is not shaken anymore by its discursiveness. That's why initial and sustained application is no longer necessary. The discursiveness of the mind is no longer shaking the balance of the mind. In other words, the mind is at ease. And therefore, maybe that mental, mental, um, that inward calm has its connection to that mental balance. Now, zestful and easeful is what they're translating, which is actually the aspect of the first. So, the enthusiasm, which arises because of the jhanas, and the the blissful feeling are, are mentioned here, but Actually, there are too many different um, different feelings mentioned. I'll just count them <laughs> just a minute. One, two, three, four, five. Too many. There should be only three. So, the uh, the mental balance is something that is uh, uh, not a factor of jhanas. It's a necessity to get there, and the rapture is something that is still with it in the second jhana, but the inner calm is probably the inner joy which is meant here. <coughs> Unfortunately, I don't have any Pali here, so I don't know, but it's quite surely the inner joy. 
So what we're, what we're looking at is inner joy, one-pointedness of mind, born of mental balance with rapture in the second journal. Now, if you should desire, by the fading out of the rapture, may I dwell in equanimity, mindful and composed, entering the third jhana, which the noble ones describe thus, he who is equanimous and mindful dwells happily. He also must do likewise. So in the, the third jhana, very often it's also the second one, which is described as a happy abiding, a state where one can rest in, a state where the consciousness has a real resting place. It doesn't have to keep on worrying, thinking, uh, relating, investigating, uh, hoping, nothing like that. It's really at ease. And if one is a meditator and does not make use of the mind's ability <coughs> to have those states, one is missing out on the benefits of meditation. Those are the states of mind which are available to any meditator, any meditator at all. And they are the benefits that we can get in compensation for the hard work one does trying to meditate. So one might as well have that if nothing else. One may as well enjoy the benefits even if one doesn't get any insight from them because the insight experience can be uh, investigated quite apart from the jhanas if one can't use them for that. But they are, of course, also useful for that. So in the third one, also wrongly translated with indifference instead of equanimity, equanimity, but in the third one, the rapture of the first one disappears, one is mindful and composed, and it is described as a happy abiding. If the meditator should desire, by abandoning the ease and discomfort, in other words, abandoning all physical sensation, ending of happiness or unhappiness, all emotional states, entering in a state which is neither pleasant nor painful, that utter purity of mindfulness reached by equanimity, the fourth jhana, may I abide therein. So if a meditator wants to go to the fourth one, one lets go of physical sensation and all emotional states so that it becomes utter purity of experience. Now this, of course, is the most important aspect of jhana. And again, I think I have said this before, I'd love to say it again, jhana cannot be thought but to be experienced. It's a purifier. And without purification, 
impossible to live a spiritual life. There's always going to be something in the way. There's always going to be an obstacle. Purity and purification are the most urgent and the most important aspects that we need to practice. And they are not easy. Every slightest dislike that one knows in oneself has to be substituted with either equanimity or seeing that it is totally unnecessary because it's also impermanent and therefore changing it into a feeling of ease and um, acceptance. Now that's a hard job to do that with everything that arises in the mind. If we don't have the help of the purification system, of the meditative absorption, one wonders whether it's possible. Because why did the Buddha do them if they're not necessary? So the utter purity is reached in the fourth jhana because there is almost no observer there. There's only the state of utter stillness. There still is an observer, but it's a very subtle one. Now, if the meditator should devour, passing utterly beyond all consciousness of object by ending the consciousness of reaction, by disregarding consciousness of diversity, knowing infinite is space, may I attain and abide in the sphere of infinite space, he must do likewise. The word he must do likewise is again and again in breath, out breath. Huh? However, a jhana meditator usually goes from one to the next without having to attend to the breath again. In fact, I can't imagine that one needs to. But what it refers to is the fact that the in-breath, out-breath is one's meditation subject to start out with. An in-breath, out-breath, as the Buddha has described it, uh, has always been referred to as the in-breath, out-breath as we know it, as the nostrils, or as we know it, as we um, can follow it in and follow it out, which is in the sutta on the in-breathing and out-breathing and the satipatthana and the mindfulness of sutta. But here, we're passing beyond consciousness of objects, so we don't ever put attention anymore on anything that is an object. We don't react to anything, and we disregard the consciousness of diversity, which means that we disregard the fact that there are separate bits and pieces in the world. We go beyond that. And we know that space has infinity to it, and therefore the mind, which is pure, and the mind has to be quite, uh, attain quite a state of purity in order to go beyond all that into the space. I have described already how to do it, so I'm not going to do that again. I'm just saying what's written here and explaining that. If he should desire, 
passing utterly beyond the sphere of the infinity of space, reaching the sphere of infinity of consciousness, knowing infinity, infinite is consciousness, may I abide therein, he must do likewise. Now, we usually come after the infinity of space, or even after the fourth one, to descriptions which are actually no descriptions. Because it is difficult to put into words um, the uh, experience of an infinity of consciousness. But I just repeat that infinity of space can only be experienced with infinity of consciousness. There's no other way of experiencing it. Now, if he should desire, passing utterly beyond the sphere of infinity of consciousness, knowing there is nothing at all, reaching the sphere of nothingness, may I abide therein, he must do likewise. So the next step after the infinity of consciousness is the sphere of nothingness, which is the experience of consciousness and space, both not containing anything that one can put one's finger on. Now, obviously, these three jhanas, being called the Prasanna jhanas, have a, give immediate access to insight which is irrefutable because it is the personal experience of having nobody there. There's no way that that kind of experience cannot bring with it insight. There's just no way that that's possible. I mean, even the dullest person, and a person who does the jhanas usually isn't very dull, must understand that without even being told. And it is always the case that that kind of experience brings a foretaste of what it's like to finally let go of this um, illusion that we live with. Now, if he should desire, passing utterly beyond the sphere of nothingness and reaching the sphere of neither consciousness or nor unconsciousness, well, this is a wrong translation, neither perception nor non-perception, let me abide therein. He must give strict attention to the same intense concentration on in-breathing and out-breathing. I like to repeat again that that is the beginning stages because we're going from one genre to the next. If we interrupt that with attention on the breath, it would not be conducive to reaching the next jhana. It would be disruptive. So it is the beginning stages when one still needs it. In the first jhana, when one uh, has the rapture or the pleasant sensation, it can be helpful to stay with the breath again and again until it's stabilized. When mental balance, the stabilization, mental balance has been attained, then that is no longer necessary. Now, this is neither perception or non-perception, which is the external, and which is a total rest for the mind, and it is nowhere in any of the sutras, nor in the commentaries, explained any further. The, um, the mind has, at that time, a resting place which is not perceived but also not not perceived so there's no way that it can be 
verbally describes other than that one needs to experience it. But the next one is interesting. Lastly, if a person should desire, passing utterly beyond the sphere of neither perception nor non-perception, reaching the ceasing of consciousness and sensation, let me so abide. He must give strict attention to the same intent concentration on in-breathing and out-breathing. This is a very interesting point because there is a ninth jhana which is actually not called ninth jhana but niroda and it is only available to non-returner and arahant and at that time there is neither sensation nor consciousness in fact the heartbeat is practically stopped the breath is stopped a person like that could be understood to be dead but there is warmth to the person so one knows it's not dead um, however it's not necessarily because this is like that it is difficult to know at this point whether meant the, the neuroda, the ninth jhana or whether the um, past moment is meant I'm inclined to think that the past moment is meant here because it doesn't say either Niroda nor does it say past moment so with the translation not being a hundred percent probably and my not having any of the Pali books here uh, I would say it says past moment because a past moment which very easily can happen after the external if the mind is inclined that way it's got to incline that way um, is a moment when there is absolutely no observer there's no sensation there's total stillness and therefore the past moment is indescribable lasts only one mind moment and the fruit moment the one after that which is two mind moments is the one that we know as the experience but we also know from the food moment that something went before but there's no way to describe it but what is being described here is negative again which is very often the case when we can't describe something and it says there is a ceasing of there is no consciousness and there is no sensation so there's nothing there to put a still point and I'm inclined to think that this, that the past moment is meant here. Because the Buddhist suttas are 99% of the time starting out with watch your breath, at the end be enlightened. And whatever is necessary in between. So this would be the, the uh, enlightenment moment and this is a, called the past moment now with that now comes some uh, instructions or some explanations of what the past moment actually has as result so this is again we've gone through the eight jhanas and the past moment has occurred and now comes what resultants there are I'd like to say one more thing about the past moment 
The mind has to be inclined that way. One has to want to be enlightened. One has to want to be able to get rid of self and ego. One has to know that ego is nothing but public enemy number one and private enemy number one. One has to know that one is operating under an illusion and one has to incline the mind towards that. Now obviously that inclining, that inclination will not do it immediately but without it there is no hope. If I want to cook I've got to incline my mind to go into the kitchen otherwise there is no hope of getting a meal. And I also have to incline my mind to sort out what I'm going to cook. I still have no guarantee that it's going to be a good meal. But without that inclination of the mind, we can be sure there won't be anything to eat. It's exactly the same with this. Unless the mind inclines that way, and that only comes after some time of practice, it doesn't come immediately. Obviously, in the, in the beginning, one wants to get a bit calm, one wants to get a bit happy, one wants, doesn't have to have so many uh, disturbing thoughts, one wants to know maybe the Buddha is right, maybe he's wrong. Uh, all these things happen in the beginning, but as one sits and sits and sits, something's got to happen somewhere. And this is what has to happen. This is where the mind has to go. And as the mind goes there, it finds its way. As one thinks about making a meal, one finds something to make it with, usually. Whatever it is, one finds something. A, my, a, a mind does exactly what it intends to do. And that's why we have to watch our intentions. We get in this life exactly what we want, believe it or not. Wherever the mind inclines, that's where it goes. We need to know what we want to do. And if we want to do this, if we really have an intention like that, all we have to do is keep that intention going. Because our whole actions and our thought processes will continue to go in that direction. And we will collect the necessary material in our mind in order to be able to do this. So the inclination of the mind is necessary and here it is expressed as if he should desire. So if he should desire he can go from first to second to third to fourth to eighth jhana and from eighth jhana to past moment if he should desire. So does one or doesn't want? Does one want to be purified? Does one want to get rid of one's hindrances? Does one want to understand what the ego is doing to one? Or doesn't one? It's all one's own personal choice. Now, monks, if intent concentration of this thought be cultivated and made much of, when one feels a pleasant feeling, one understands this is impermanent and understands I do not cling to it and understands it has no lure for me no attraction for me now these are results naturally we can practice this but usually without much uh, success 
these are results of the past moment. This is what now is being explained. There are more results yet coming. But the first one is already a very important one. When one feels a pleasant feeling, one knows it's impermanent. That's why I keep saying, you do the jhanas, please don't forget to look at the impermanence of them. And one understands one is not clinging to that pleasant feeling. It has no real attraction. When one feels a painful feeling, one understands likewise. It's impermanent. I don't have to, in this case, cling. I have to. I don't have to identify with it. It does not have the sting to it. It's just a painful feeling. Now, when pleasant feelings are just pleasant feelings and painful feelings are just painful feelings, obviously, what does arise? Equanimity. Even-mindedness being at ease under any condition. The same goes for the neutral feeling. Now, with the neutral feeling, we don't have much trouble with that. Most people don't even know they've got neutral feelings. But when we do know we have them, there's no problem with them because, I mean, they're... So what? We don't cling to them because they're hardly noticed. Now, if one feels a pleasant feeling, one feels it, as one released from bondage to it. Now this is the explanation of, well I would say more than supplementary. This is the, the uh, re- this is already the explanation of the non-returner. You see now a pleasant feeling is felt, and because there is no clinging to that and because it has no real attraction which would make one cling to it one knows one is released from that bondage now this is actually an explanation of reviewing knowledge the reviewing knowledge is first is past moment then is truth moment Past moment is one mind moment, foot moment are two. Foot moment, well, no, it's one foot moment which is divided into two mind moments. In other words, very quick. And then comes reviewing knowledge. Now, reviewing knowledge can go on over a long time. One checks oneself again and again. How much do I react? How much reaction am I doing? Well, most people, no, sorry, everybody, who hasn't had a past moment is reacting over and over and over. And the worst of it is that all this reaction is always blamed on somebody else. We keep forgetting that we are reacting, but nothing to do with anybody else. Everybody else is having their own problems. And if we if sometimes it's even considered not just a person but it may be even reacting to ideology or it might be a reaction to um, um, terminology anything and then we blame that but this is our worst mistaken thought and as long as we do that we're not practicing 
practice starts when we take it upon our own shoulders to see we are doing it. I always give that example, and I'm sure most of you have heard it, but I'll do it again because one forgets everything of the jack-in-the-box. Little toy for children, little doll sitting on a string inside a box with a little lid on. Kid comes along, presses the lid, and little jack-in-the-box jumps out. Very nice, delightful for the child. And then somebody comes along and pulls that jack-in-the-box out of that box. And the child can come with a hammer and nothing comes out. That's what this is. Pleasant feeling, unpleasant feeling. Nothing jumps out. It just is a feeling. Released from bondage. No longer a slave. As long as we're reacting to our feelings, we're a slave to our feelings. And because we don't like to admit that we're slaves, we're blaming something else somebody else for it. Nobody likes to admit that they're slaves to their own feelings because if they haven't had any of that understanding yet, well, then of course we don't like to admit such things. So it must be somebody else's fault. But that we're only reacting to pleasant or unpleasant feelings, when we see that clearly, that's when the desire for deliverance arises. Now, the desire for deliverance is the, one of the steps on the inside path, which brings with it then the urgency to practice. And after the urgency to practice, which means that one practices not when one thinks of it or when, it's, when there's a retreat, but then one practices, period. Nothing else, because one wants to get out of this mess. So here, this person, or this meditator, or this practitioner here, has had in the past moment more than screamentry, and feels a pleasant feeling and knows he's released from bondage to it, feels a painful feeling and a neutral feeling, and knows that he's released from bondage to them. No reaction. They just are. Now, if such a person has a feeling that bodily endurance has reached its limit, he is aware that he so feels. No reaction. That's it. One feels the limits of bodily endurance. That's it. Finished. When such a person has a feeling that life has reached its limit, he is aware that he feels so. That's it. Nothing else. He understands when the body breaks up after life is used up all my experiences in this world will lose their attraction and grow cold. I dare say that's not quite well translated. <laughs> lose their passion I presume or something like that. With this thing one really needs to have the Pali around. Anyway, the... Um, the death feeling has no um, reaction to it. The limit of bodily endurance has no reaction to it. It just is. Why? Because body 
and minds are no longer mine. They just are. They don't belong to anybody, they just are. It's an interesting and extremely meaningful difference between what is often understood to be mystical teaching or even Buddha's teaching and what he really taught. as an enormous meaningful difference. What he taught in no uncertain terms, there's no way of um, uh, mixing words there because it's said in those words that all existence, no matter how, why and, and where, is Dukkha. And not what is often hoped for by the ego, that he has said that the way we exist is Dukkha. This is an enormous difference and blissfully misunderstood all the time because the ego can then latch on to this and say, well, it's just the way I'm existing, it's wrong, I'm going to do it right and I'll be fine because I'll do all the spiritual practices and I'll be great. But that's not what the Buddha said at all. He said, existence is Dukkha. And therefore, when we really want to practice, existence is no longer an attraction. And here is feeling. So here, with the bodily endurance and with the death uh, moments having been experienced, there's absolutely no reaction because the uh, existence is no longer considered to be something of importance or of any any uh, value. So when the life is used up, the experiences in this world will lose their attraction. Now this particular uh, discourse is called the discourse of the lamp, and the reason for that is it's the very last paragraph. Just as Because of oil and because of a wick, a lamp keeps burning. But if oil and wick were used up, the lamp would go out because it's not fed. Even so, when one has a feeling that bodily endurance has reached its limit, that life has reached its limit, when one has a feeling that when body breaks up after life is used up, all experiences in this world will lose their attraction and grow cold, then indeed a person is aware that this is the feeling. So this is the reviewing knowledge which tells one that one has reached the end of the path. This reviewing knowledge shows one that none of these so-called tragedies of death or very, very great bodily um, unpleasant feelings, very great bodily pain, has any real intrinsic value or identification system that they are owned by anybody. And as the oil and the wick of a lamp keep burning when they are being fed, they go out when they are no longer fed. The person who understands all that no longer feeds this, the life continuum with the um, passions 
of like and dislike. And as one no longer feeds the life continuums with like and dislike, it goes out. This is the same story as when the Buddha was asked, does the Buddha exist after death? Does he not exist after death? Does he neither exist nor not exist? Does he exist and not exist? When he said, well, what does the fire do when you don't feed it? It goes out, yes, well, does it go forward, backward, sideways, upward or downward? No, it just goes out. The fire of the passions has gone out. Now, very often that is considered to be a tragedy when the fire of the passions go out. Well, as long as it's considered to be a tragedy, the past hasn't been entered yet. That's all right. Most of humanity is on that uh, track, that the passions are very important. But one only realizes that they are a dreadful impediment when one is really introspective enough to recognize their constant hurtfulness that they inflict upon one's peace and harmony within. All this... Um, emotional up and down that people experience is um, a complete um, extinction of peace and harmony with them. And only when one sees that as one's own, and not because somebody else is breaking up one's peace and harmony, but one sees in here there is no peace and harmony as long as all these passions are raging, then one knows what it means to have the fire go out. And the fire goes out, well, the Buddha was enlightened in his lifetime at the age of 35. The fire that goes out is not that such a person can no longer have an energetic life which is of great value to others. On the contrary, Buddha taught for 45 years every single day but the, the, the fire that goes out is that emotional um, tug-of-war which is constantly attracted to one thing and rejects another. This attraction and rejection is so much of a, a detriment to oneself that clear thinking is impossible no clarity of thought. So as long as the emotions are raging, the thinking is impaired. There's no way that emotion, raging emotions, which may just be like and dislike, uh, can contribute to clear thinking. So this is what the description that is given here is a description of the result of the past improvement the reviewing knowledge. How do I stand with regards to my liking the pleasant and disliking the unpleasant? Now, the, interestingly enough, through continual practice, it is much easier to not dislike the unpleasant than it is to not like the pleasant. And only people who really practice will find that out. 
the whole world is running after pleasant feelings. Everybody. That's all anybody wants. And they're trying to get them somehow. In any, in any manner or form. And it's much easier to train oneself to be fairly, maybe not completely, but to be fairly at ease with unpleasant feelings, and that uh, is sensation and emotion, then it is not to like the pleasant. These results only come from path and fruit. Now, path and fruit come from calm and insight. And the last bit was the calm bit. But the first bit of this Buddha was the inside bit. So we often find a Sutta first calm, then inside. And often first inside, then calm. It doesn't matter. But both will have to be developed. Because if we learn and and practice inside first, it will not reach to path moment until and unless the mind is so one-pointed that it can actually reach that still point. It can't do it. It hasn't got the strength. It hasn't got the muscle power. So therefore, Inside first, then calm, fine. Calm first, and then inside also fine. But it's got to be done both ways. The most effective way of practicing is doing both. Naturally, not at the same time, but during the same period. In other words, if one is in a retreat, sometimes, And I've given you the method for both, so there should be no problem. The Buddha said that he has taught everything that is necessary for enlightenment. One time he walked with his monks in the forest, he picked up a handful of leaves from the ground and said to the monks, which is more, the leaves on the trees or the leaves in my hand? The monks said, well, of course, the leaves in the trees are more than the leaves in your hand. And he said, what I know is like the leaves in the trees, but what I've taught you is like the leaves in my hand, and it's totally sufficient for enlightenment. So, we don't have to know everything. All we have to do is practice. And where do we practice? We practice in here, in our own heart and mind, and become aware of all the ramifications and all the obstructions and all the dislikes and all the reactions that happen in there. And we don't think they're due to somebody else. We don't think that the trigger that has brought them up, namely that touching the lid of this little jack-in-the-box, that the person who's touching it or the ideal or whatever it is that's touching it is at fault. It's the reason because the jack-in-the-box is sitting there, that's why it's 
jumping out. When the jack-in-the-box is gone, how can it jump out? Nothing could be clearer than that, and yet it doesn't sink in. It's amazing. I must have said the same thing already, I don't know, 500 times. And I keep saying the same thing over and over again. If there is no jack-in-the-box, how can it jump out? It will only jump out because it's in there. Now, that is the practice. To recognize that it's jumping. And all this jumping that's going on in there, making life difficult for oneself. Sometimes one also succeeds in making it difficult for others. Most of the time one makes it difficult for oneself. Now, when we make it difficult for others, if, if our intention is that, of course, that's bad karma. But if our intention is not that, then, of course, we might be able to reverse that procedure. This is an interesting sutta, a very interesting one, because in the first instance, it goes to insight first, and then to calm, and it tells of the results of the past moment which is not very often the case. Very often, what is being told here about the feelings is given as a practice. This is how to practice, to recognize our feelings and to know that they're not mine, that we do not have to react to them. But here it is shown that this is the result. Here is shown what the reviewing knowledge will bring us. Now, the more we react to our feelings, the less insight. The less we react, the more insight. We cannot suppress our reactions. The Buddha neither taught suppression nor expression. What he taught was, first of all, the substitution from the negative to the positive, from the unwholesome to the wholesome, and finally, the insight which makes it possible to not react in the first place. Because the feelings are no longer mine. It's an ideal state, obviously, and but certainly, it seems to me, one worth working for. If one has seen in oneself that the whole misery of life uh, arises because of one's reactions, to one's pleasant or unpleasant feelings. Never mind the neutral ones, we never know about them anyway. And if we do, we're quite happy that they're not painful. So we don't have that really uh, as a, an inner difficulty. It's the pleasant and the painful which are our difficulties. And that's the, the end of this particular sutta. And um, I find a shorter one tomorrow. So, because if I start a long one tomorrow, then you'll forget the the beginning by the time we get to the end. Then. Now, any questions on anything? Uh, please, can you repeat the the uh, likewise thing? He must do likewise. That's yeah. all it said. It's concerning in-breath, out-breath. Concentration. On, oh, oh, I see. Okay, I'll say that. Um.
just hang on. The intent concentration on in-breathing and out-breathing. Intent concentration on in-breathing and out-breathing. That's what is meant by he must do likewise. It's of great fruit, of great profit. Let's see where it starts here again. Just hang on. Has to be perfectly clear. Now the re- the rest is only the practice, is it? Quite clear what this little jack in the box is supposed to mean, because that is really the crux of the practice. The minute one sees that this is what's happening within, then one is willing. Before that, one is looking for outside um, input. It's going to have to come from somewhere. But when we see that we carry the jack-in-the-box in ourselves, then we know this is where it's got to be done. Please put the attention on the breath for just a few moments.
become aware how precious it, it is to be alive and be able to practice. Notice the preciousness of that. And then love that practice that you're doing with all your heart. Now love yourself as the one who is practicing. Now let your love reach out to anyone whom you know is practicing and who you think would benefit from your love. Let that person have your wholehearted care and concern and warmth
think of all the people who are practicing any spiritual path and love them all dearly. As if they were yourself. Think of all the many people who may not be practicing a spiritual path, but nevertheless are trying to be good, good human beings. Embrace them as if they were yourself. Love them with your whole heart. Think of all the many people who are accepting the good with the bad, not trying to practice. Embrace them as if they were yourself. Love them with your whole heart.
think of the many people where that what is bad in them getting the upper hand embrace them as if they were yourself love them with all your heart Think of the whole of creation surrounding us, upholding our existence. Making it possible to practice. Give it your wholehearted love to the whole of creation which surrounds us. in which we are embedded. Embrace it as if it is yourself. Come back to yourself and the 
love for your practice. Love it completely, devotedly, faithfully. That what makes this life worthwhile. Embrace it as being yourself. Set love in your heart. Let the love flow out, outwards, to beings everywhere. Let it flow finding all beings within you, yourself within all beings. No separation, no difference, just love. beings live together in love. 